Welcome to episode 259 of the No Persinium podcast, the voice of everything immersive. I'm your host, Noah Nelson, coming to you from the No Pro headquarters in Los Angeles, a.k.a. the kitchen table. This week on the show, uh, a returning guest, Sean Stewart. Uh, Sean is coming this time in the role of writer and director of Roundabout, which is premiering on Twitch this coming week and is performed by students of Australia's National Institute of Dramatic Art. Um, this is Sean's uh, first play in a, in a long time. Uh, you probably know Sean, if you've been listening to the show long enough, as uh, a novelist and as one of the originators of the alternate reality game format. Uh, he was one of the writers back on what is sometimes called The Beast and is also known as Cloudmakers, which was the ARG that was done for uh, Spielberg's AI uh, low, low, many lifetimes ago. Um, if you've never listened to our original episode with Sean, uh, you're in for a treat. I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, it's a fantastic, fantastic time. Uh, and it was recorded uh, outside on the porch, so it sounds like we're... we're it sounds like we're having like a, a chat like on a warm summer evening because we were. Um, this was this was on a warm summer morning. This was this week. Uh, Sean's latest work. Uh, again, this is his first play like in, in a really long time. Uh, it's going to be on Twitch. Uh, he's going to describe it all. But the other thing that happened this week was Sean wrote an essay about uh, sort of the, the way that theater could leapfrog cinema as the central uh, art form of the 21st century. We'll link that in the show notes as well. And when I read that, I knew that I really wanted to have a conversation with Sean about uh, the role of the audience and about just the way these these different mediums are sort of converging and, and what's the difference between theater and cinema and television uh, because everything's kind of being shoved into our laptops and our phones right now. So like, what's, what's the essence of it? So this is one of those, uh, early morning coffee, uh, brunch, you know, type conversations. So hopefully that's how you get to enjoy it. I know some of you listen to it on Friday afternoon as soon as it comes out. Uh, but this is a, this is a perfect Saturday morning, uh, episode. So, uh, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, let's do a little bit of housekeeping. First, we'll do the Patreon and then some uh, program notes because, yeah, uh, there was a chance there wasn't going to be an episode this week, and, and here there is one. I know I mentioned that last time. We'll get to that in a second. Our latest backers are the folks at Little Cinema. Uh, jumped in at the $5 level. Uh, we we only ask that people jump in at like the 2 or $5 level. We want broad support, uh, not looking to have just a, 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 bunch, a few people backing us here because we know things are... <laughs> Look at the world, man. Uh, we're holding steady at 336 backers, which means we're still 14 away from our next milestone. But I got a feeling we'll get there sometime this century. Um, our sustaining backers are Mark Baltazar, Jan Budman, Paul F., Lonnie Hansen, Ari Hurston, Sam Kinkin, Samuel Mysteries, Sidney Guillory, Jeremy Charles Hahn, Brittany, and Elaine. Thank you all so much. Uh, you do form the backbone of our support and uh, pretty much uh, cover my rent. So 
Thank you all. Uh, I am internally indebted to you people. Um, join them at patreon.com slash no proscenium to, uh, to keep us going, keep us alive. Uh, program note, we will not have a no proscenium episode next week because I need a moment to catch up, uh, to get some more episodes in the can and uh, create kind of a, a smooth surface. Uh, I'll get into some more reasons for why for that. After the show, if you if you really want the the nitty gritty sad details, uh, but we will drop an episode of Webtoes, the Ducktales footnotes, uh, because uh, we've got some in the can, and it's been a minute, and uh, I know at least one person out there is like, "Oh, come on, man, I want to hear it." So there you go. Uh, there'll there'll be something in the feed next week, but not an episode of No Persinium. Uh No Persinium will return uh, into the feed uh, the following week, one way or another. Uh, we'll get something in the can that gives us enough time to do what we need to do. All right. Without further ado, uh, a conversation with one of my favorite people to talk to, period, Sean Stewart. Good morning, Sean. Hey, Noah. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks for responding to a rather late minute uh, request. You're working on so for all of set up in the cold open. I'll explain generally who you are. Um, uh, you're working on a new show right now. Uh, I wonder if you could kind of fill everyone in on what that is because this is going to air. Uh, recording this on July 30th. We're going to drop this on August 1st. So the shows, the shows next week. Yeah, coming up. Uh, so the high concept is um, imagine you had uh, your basic love triangle. There are two girls and a guy. There are two straight people and a gay person. Uh, normal hijinks will ensue, except they're also being watched by three digital beings who've decided they're tired of zooping around the internet and want to go back into human bodies. And now the audience gets to choose who goes into what bodies and hijinks ensue. All right. So, so... It, it's musical chairs with uh, six characters trying to do the best they can to maneuver around in the three bodies they have accessible to them. So like uh parent trap cubed kind of or not parent trapped. What's the other one? What's the other one? I don't Freak, know. Freaky Friday. Freaky Friday. Freaky Friday cubed. You know, exactly. it, some Disney movie that was remade with Lindsay Lohan. So that's that's all I know. <laughs> can can we pause to observe that Lindsay Lohan was like really great when she was twelve? Like she one could of act. one of, you know, honestly, one of the great tragedies of the millennial generation like like every millennial every generation has like the child actor who you're like oh no don't fall apart no uh and i think that was Lindsay for millennials because from from the the parent trap remake straight up through mean girls yep just just freaking aces and um yeah watching watching her career watching herself fall apart and Oh, the indignities, you know, the kind of thing where you hope whoever like the next deck, whoever is the Quentin Tarantino in the good sense of the next decade, 
the person who gets into reviving people's careers, I hope they have a yeah. soft spot for Lindsay and I hope she's ready for it. Um, because, yeah. because she, I will be very happy if I'm like in my seventies and like Lindsay Lohan finally gets an Oscar or something like that. I'm not very happy, but yeah, no, she was good. She was good. She was, she could play. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, no, we the pretty, was pretty confident that no one tuned in thinking that was going to happen. <laughs> no, but this, that's the beauty of no proscenium. Like, you know, you do not, you do not know what you're going to get. And so like, it's like, yeah, we're talking about Lindsay Lohan. Um, so the reason why, aside from talking about the show, cause I think, I think, you know, who you're doing the show with, why you're doing the show and, and some of that factors into to, to what I'm interested in. You wrote, uh, an essay this week, or I guess you wrote it last week, you dropped this week. Um, time what is time um uh about uh sort of what the impetus for doing the show was which was the the idea you latched onto but also sort of broader about this idea that theater has a chance to leapfrog cinema as you know this a central art form in the 21st century and as a show that's all about uh you know weird experimental theater and the relationship between immersive theater and digital spaces and all the other good stuff people expect from us uh i of course was absolutely fascinated by this framing uh and we had talked about it before but like um yeah i, w- I wonder if you could sort of get into your thinking here because I think there's a lot to unpack in this idea. Uh, and it's actually something that I'm, I'm sort of tussling with in my own head. Um, and that's what I was hoping to talk to you about today. Uh, sure. Uh, happy to. And I guess I'll probably tell the story sort of as it happened, because you know me, I started as a novelist. So I like stories with beginnings and middles. The end is not yet written. We'll see how that goes. Um, in the spring, I was working on a project with the Royal Shakespeare Company. And I was really excited about some of the things we were going to do to blend kind of the online storytelling that's weirdly turned out to be my particular bailiwick and some of the live in environment stuff that the Royal Shakespeare Company is pretty pretty darn good at. Um, Then COVID happened. And uh, we had to put a pin on sort of the centerpiece of that show um, for the time being. But the next, almost within a day or two, I got contacted by NIDA, which is the National Institute for Dramatic Arts in Australia. It's basically Australian for Juilliard. And they produced Kate Blanchett and Baz Luhrmann and Mel Gibson and, you know, lots so of they're, they're the people who steal all our jobs. Okay, cool. They are the people who steal all your jobs. <laughs> That's exactly right. <clears throat> I have, uh, I've heard that framing from several people and I won't say if the people at NIDA are any of those people. Um, <laughs> I will do, they say just, do they just slip into an effortless American accent when they say it? Or I mean, these theoretical people. So. If you, if, yeah. Uh, if you go, I don't know if you've seen the little trailer, um, the teaser we cut for the show, but uh, in one of them, we did a first version of the teaser with um, one of my actors 
and I said, you're going to have to go put more in at the beginning so people realize she's Australian so that they can be appropriately gobsmacked by the perfection of that American accent. Oh, my um, God. Yeah. So, yeah, it's yeah, yeah, the rumors are true. Yeah. It's um, the first class they take, right? No. This- <laughs> I do not know. I swear. Anyway, that's speaking, sp- speaking of things from the nineties. Um, all right. So you got contacted by NIDA. So, so I guess by- Juilliard, yeah. the more successful Juilliard contacts you. So they, and they said, Hey, we have our graduating class of actors always participates in a play in a theater festival. And we just canceled that, which seems like a downer. Uh, you seem like a guy who does things online. Want to direct a play? Had they? Had they? How do they know you? Had you like talked to some of the people who worked there before, or they were just like? Uh, so it turned out that the first contact was a guy who I will now tell the longer version of the story since you have squeezed it out of me. The the first contact was, hey, I teach a class at NIDA um, all about sort of dramaturgical things, and everything we're talking about has suddenly become irrelevant. But before I taught a class at NIDA, I did experimental uh, opera in, uh, I don't know, weird flash mobby opera things. I don't even know. But before I did that, I was a player on I Love Bees. Uh Uh, So he was a guy who, in his college years, roughly, had seen I Love Bees go by and had tried to describe it over the years as sometimes it's a story and sometimes it's a website and sometimes it's a flash mob and sometimes it's devised theater. It's hard to explain. Uh, Oh, and it's an audio drama. So he thought of me um, and reached out as just a cold call. And I said, hey, sure, I'd be happy to talk to your class. I've just been thinking a lot about theater because Royal Shakespeare Company, and they just shut down. And Royal Shakespeare Company, it turns out, is a good name to drop in a conversation like that. So the head of the school was back with an email an hour after that saying, hey, want to direct a show? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so, so to your point... Um, I woke up the next morning with a thought um, as I was trying to think, what would I do given that opportunity? Because most people know that I'm a novelist uh, who know me at all, know that I've been a novelist and I've done this alternate reality game stuff. What you know that most people don't is that I was very much a theater kid. Um, When I was in high school, I acted in 23 shows and I teched on 25 more. So I'm not saying they were good, but I'm saying, you know, I know what it is to smell the grease paint. Um, What you're saying is like you, you have uh, haunted a Denny's at 2 a.m. after. after Exactly. That is exactly what I'm saying. (laughs) There's, there's some waitress out there who still has flashbacks of that one night. Um. My, my high school drama teacher was, um, as you can tell, brutally pragmatic. So we walked into his class on the first day of 10th grade and he said, there's a box of scripts in the corner you're on in two weeks. We're charging money. Go. Um, Oh, wow. My high school drama teacher would have loved your high school drama teacher. They they would have gotten along so well. And we learned things that they don't teach you. And even a fancy school like NIDA, like 
if you salt the donuts in the first intermission, you sell more pop in the second intermission. <laughs> so, uh, uh, salted donuts gonna be a thing at the LA immersive scene. Let me tell you, yeah, <laughs> that it, just happened. Impresarial um, is the kind word. So entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial. Yeah, it's a good thing now. It's yeah, it yeah. didn't used to be so good a thing, but now we're kind of no. down. So uh, anyway, I was trying to think about what I would do if I was given this chance. And then a kind of a couple of structural thoughts occurred to me. Um, I happened to have a friend who had been live streaming things on Twitch. And it occurred to me that one of the ways to look at the 20th century and the rise of film is that, no offense, theater people, film kicked theater's ass in the 20th century because film is what Silicon Valley calls scalable, meaning you make it one time, but then a whole you can sell tickets to a whole bunch of people over and over and over. So your unit cost is sunk only once, and you can keep selling the thing, and you can reach a very large audience, whereas a live theater you do every day, and you can get you know, if your theater holds 204 people, that's how many tickets you can sell. But a platform like Twitch, of course, scales. Uh, big gaming platforms scale. Facebook Live scales. Um, a few, before the last Star Wars film, they did a Star Wars trailer release on Fortnite. Yep. And... Probably more people watch that on Fortnite than can fit in every seat in every Cineplex Odeon in the world because it scales. So I suddenly thought, wait a second. We now have tools and platforms that erase a huge part of the reach advantage that films have had. And then added to that a second thought, you know that I've spent a lot of years working with various forms of branching narrative, interactive narrative, immersive narrative, responsive narrative, however many, how many ways you want to say the audience is watching a story, but somehow the story is also watching them. Hmm. And in order to get a story to respond to players, it's actually extremely difficult and expensive for most art forms to do. Um, a big sandbox style AAA video game is pretty responsive within the limits of you can respond in only the ways the controller lets you, um, but you can make that. It'll also cost you eh, $600 million. Cinema, has a terrible time being responsive to an audience because you Massively have terrible. <laughs> you have whatever you shot 11 months ago in the can and the expectation of the model is they sit there and watch it which is and, fine. And even when you get experiments like I remember Coppola was running around half a decade decade ago doing live mixes of a movie he had shot. Uh and so Francis Ford Coppola in the theater, mixing the movie live, which, you know, theoretically amazing experience. Apparently the movie is very bad. Um, <laughs> Always a drag. 
Yeah, with drag. You know, so, what do you mean you're not remixing Godfather? Uh, who are these actors you found? Um, wh- why don't you just go back to making wine? No, no, it's serious. I, I would love to see one last great Coppola film. Um, but but notoriously, like it, it, it just the, the options are so limited that uh, a remix is all you can do. Like at at best, you get Clue. At best. Or, I mean, the the biggest swing at this recently is the Black Mirror episode Bandersnatch. Yeah. Which they do about as well as you can do that. But the reality is there are a very fixed number of choices, and those choices are predetermined for you, and you can make them or not. And the cost of that is enormous because branching narrative has a math problem. Um, every time you branch a narrative, you are definitionally making twice as much content which half as many people will see and that math problem becomes very hard very fast games learned this in the early 90s Um, if it's text-based games text is reasonably cheap to produce which as a writer you know i lament but it's the fact uh high quality video where you're paying tens of thousands or even hundred thousands of dollars a minute for finished product uh making 2x, 4x, 8x, 16x is unsupportable. But you know what's really good at responding in real time to audience feedback? Live actors. Mm -hmm. And I woke up in the morning thinking, oh, I know a way I can do interaction with an audience better than a $600 million video game, and it involves paying a guy who otherwise is making $12 an hour serving at Denny's. I think I've just stumbled into uh, what the Moneyball guys would say is an unexploited um, advantage. So reduced to its simplest elements, the thesis is that theaters, cinema's advantage in scale gets largely erased by Facebook Live and Twitch and platforms like it. And theater has an unexplored but enormous advantage in responsiveness to the audience. And I thought, if you wrote a play that leaned into that, that said, hey, audience, you're there. We're playing to you, yes, but we're also going to play with you. um, And we're going to go on a dance together. Um, We can do something that cinema cannot do. And I think people are going to like it. I've seen the proofs of concept and other work I've done. And to give a sort of historical comp, and then I'll stop soliloquizing. Um, when I was in college, um, bands toured to support albums. Right. Now bands drop albums to support tours. Mm-hmm. Content is viewed as essentially a piratable commodity that you can get on BitTorrent. Experiences, on the other hand, have perceived value. If you're listening to No Proscenium, you get what I'm laying down here in terms of the value, the premium people put on a live experience where they feel engaged. And and this is one of those things that is not going to change because of COVID. Like there's, there's a lot of consternation right now. And, and the thing, the thing I know, you know, a lot of theater people are wrestling with is in mean, right when the pandemic hit, the first thing was, well, we can't do live theater anymore. 
you know, and there were, there were articles saying, well, there was like medium posts that were just like, oh, we shouldn't even try. Like theater artists quit, quit trying to jump onto a zoom screen and, and do your shows. Like now is not the time. Um, and some of that I think was there, there's still something a little bit to it in that it doesn't translate exactly like, and, and where we sit at no pro, you know, we'll get pitched something like there are people who are earnestly pitching us, you know, like, Hey, we're going to read Hamlet on zoom. I'm like, that's cool. You're going to read Hamlet. You're going to read Hamlet. Like what, how is that remotely in our wheelhouse? Right. Um, and, and then I look at what you're doing and I look at what uh, the pixel playhouse kids just did with definitely not clue, uh, which is also streamed on Twitch. And, and I look at something like the stuff that's going on in VR, et cetera, et cetera. And I start to think I'm, I'm playing around right now. And this is, this is kind of where I want to, I wanted to, because I know you're already thinking these terms, I want to bounce some of this stuff off you. I was like, I was going to try and write all this first uh, and then, you know, life. Um, <laughs> so as we sit here and, and I try and figure out, all right, like, and this is something I said on last week's episode. Sorry, everybody, the coffee's not working yet. And there was an earthquake this morning that woke me up at 4.30. Uh, Sean was already up, apparently. Um, uh, last week on the show, I, I sort of like pointed out there's a lot of theater makers uh, who've turned online and, and now unfortunately they're kind of making just bad television. Right. Like they're putting people in zoom boxes and they're doing a show and, you know, interactivity might not be their forte. And, and I even think like interactivity where someone gets to branch the narrative. Like, I mean, I remember one of our earliest conversations uh, way back was about choose your own adventures, and uh, you've got a line about libraries and choose your own adventure books, like pe- people's personal libraries. Right, that, that's always stuck with me. And, um, and 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 there's there can be a, a deep lack of satisfaction uh, in those forms, particularly when if someone can like polish up a performance and and get something going on, that's that's what you that we really want. But I've also think, been thinking about the relationship between cinema in the sense of, you know, the film industry and cinema being a, a communal experience, a thing you go to to go watch a movie together. Television being where you're watching filmed entertainment, be it movie length or episodic, mostly alone or in a very small pod of people, usually. And then theater, which is traditionally where you're going again have this communal experience watching people live and if you take it and you know like when they would do oh god what's the name of that um the name of the play the teleplay that that was also converted into dr strangelove failsafe i think oh i don't know it oh so like so dr strangelove is actually based off a, a of a different play or play oh. of like uh, I think I think it might be called failsafe. Someone can look it up. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. Maybe Google uh, Sensei will know. Yeah, and and they have actually it was originally produced like as a live because early days of television they would do live plays basically get all the actors in the room run the thing live because videotape was very expensive. It's like why are we bothered? But they they would tape it too, uh, and I think they literally did. Um, I think Noah Wiley. Or Ed Norton, I don't know. I get them confused sometimes. Oddly, I don't know why. I think they did it again, like about 15 years ago. They like did a live version of it again. 
um, cause it can function as like a one, a one room, a unit set, right. You can, right. You can do the show that way. Um, and, and this is the kind of thing, you know, is, is that, is that television or is that theater? Right. And I would argue, well, it's, it's a live broadcast, but there's no audience there. There's no feedback loop, um, for the actors, but there's also no feedback loop for the audience. Right. This, this is something I think is absolutely critical. And, and one of the reasons why, you know, watching say the, the national theaters version of, of streetcar named desire on YouTube, not terribly satisfying watching the national theaters version of Hamlet in a movie theater actually satisfying and for me the difference is there's an audience with me in the latter and not in the former that energy changes our own relationship as an audience to the material and and that feels as much as the responsiveness of the actors the responsiveness of the audience feels like an absolutely critical part for the audience's sake a critical part of the formula theater is a communal experience so what i said to the guys at nida well first off yes that so what i said to the guys at nida is i have an idea for a play but the big idea here isn't the play it's the theater mm. twitch is going to be our theater because it has the following property it has a box that you show video where you can put actors, but next to that box, it has a chat channel, a stream of content, and an audience that is used to commenting, joking, laughing, insulting, heckling, making puns, and otherwise behaving as we know the internet does in response to whatever's happening in the video window. I hope you like my play. I hope you like my characters and you like the lines that they say and you like the story they tell. But the thing that is important for practitioners of theater is, guys, guys, I have this stage that I think is important. It's the theater, not the play, that mm. really matters. Because, um, so, uh, uh, complicated little ball of ideas, but for a variety of reasons um, that we talked That's about. That's the tagline for no proscenium, by the way. Complicated <laughs> little ball of ideas. You just, you just subtitled the show. Long Excellent. <laughs> well, as we talked about, um, we chatted briefly in June, I think, um, the nature of Twitch or Facebook Live or YouTube or any of these things is that um, they're much more egalitarian platforms. The line between the streamer and the people watching the streamer is basically, yeah, you, that guy's got a mic. It's not like when you're sitting in a cinema and there's 30 foot tall Brad Pitt looming over you in Technicolor. Um, so one of the things we did is we just live streamed making the show. So if people wanted, they could see us working in the prop shop, trying to make the gag where the phone explodes or going to get the costumes or building the set for the internet yurt. Here's how you build a yurt in a prop shop. Um, 
a continuing ethos of that uh, was I decided to ask a lot of people to drop by on the live stream and just sort of talk a little bit about theater and their relationship to it and where they thought it was going. And one of the people who came was uh, Pippa Hill, who's the head of literary for the Royal Shakespeare Company. And who in the lead up to that said, hey, so excited. Is there a script I can read? For a guy who's never written a play, like not even in eighth grade, that's a very intimidating bar. Like the first person who ever read a script is the literary manager for the Royal Shakespeare Company. Okay, then. Yeah. Uh, but we were talking to Pippa, and she was really, she read the script, God bless her. Um, and she was saying, it's so interesting how you've made the audience a character in the show and sort of engaged them as a presence throughout. And what I said to her was, I think the thing I know that you don't yet is how much of the entertainment value of the show will be made by the audience for the audience. Mm -hmm. If you look at a fan phenomenon like Supernatural, Supernatural is a fine show, but the fans talking about Supernatural are a better show. Right. That's, that's where the enjoyment goes. Um, an example I sometimes use that's sort of meta and non-theatrical, but in 2016, the National Football League made $13 billion all in, ticket receipts, etc. I probably said this the last time we were on a podcast. Fantasy football made $15 billion. This little meta game that the internet plays with football now drives more revenue than football does. Yeah. I think we need to understand that the, when I say theater has a chance to eclipse film, I, I mean it, but I think we have to understand I don't mean putting the cherry orchard on Zoom is going to knock film from its cultural pedestal. Yeah. I think the theater that will emerge is one that understands how to play with people, that understands that that audience wants to dance. They don't have to be the only thing happening, but they need to be involved a little bit. Uh, and if you involve them, if you take to that theater and do it mindfully, say, in, in real time live, there's an audience here who's talking, how can I make that an integral part of my show? How can I take the funniest things they say and amplify them? How can I make them a big part of what I'm doing? then I think we're onto something that has legs. And I don't think I have to argue much about it. I can, yeah. I can say, look at the world. <laughs> yeah. Look at people live tweeting the Oscars and you know that I'm right. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I don't watch the Oscars. I watch Twitter watch the Oscars. Exactly. It's way more efficient. I, 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 get, I get my night back. It's great. Um. <laughs> so imagine if you just started designing the Oscars and the 
you realize that the Twitter feed is what you cared about, you have to still make a show without the Oscars, without Supernatural, without Star Wars. There isn't that other show. But what if you started thinking, what I'm making here is not the little thing that goes inside the video box, but is rather the experience that it includes and the most important part of which is that audience relationship with what I put in the box. Yeah. And I, I start thinking about there's actually a lot of depth possible here. There's layers here. Uh, I was at, and, and, and the scale of the audience actually creates both the challenge and, and some of the opportunities for that depth. Yep. So, so little true. cinema, little cinema who was on the show like two episodes ago, they've been doing these premiere parties and they did, uh, we discussed this last week on the show. They, they did one for the alienist, which is, um, uh, the, the, the elf, El Fanning, Dakota Fanning, Dakota Fanning. Oh, one of the Fannings. I keep forgetting which one comes first. The Fanning, Daniel Bruhl, uh, Luke Evans uh, adaptation of the novel. It's like the second season of of the show. It's you know the detectives in um, you know, Victorian era New York and psychologists, um, profilers, CS, CSI gangs of New York, right? Yeah. Um, and which, by the way, what is not great about that concept? Oh, it's, it's fantastic concept. Um, like without without a doubt, uh, <laughs> nothing like nothing like serial killers and suffragettes. So, um, <laughs> which uh, which is my my next role playing game. So, oh, I was gonna say it was the, my next album, but oh, okay. yeah, role playing game is good. Probably why not, better. Why not both? Why not both? Um, I like it. I like that. It's role-playing. I like that trans platform thinking there. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, um, everything, everything gets a game these days. So, um, and and they did they did a murder mystery party for the premiere, and then they reran it as a fan event on the Sunday. And at the premiere, the number of people at the premiere was a lot smaller, or at least the people in, actively engaged on the chat window because they kind of have a custom Twitch sort of setup, right? With like multiple video channels running with multiple chat rooms, and you can kind of run around in them by clicking on different boxes. Uh, but when they did for the fan event, like, as I was told by Catherine and others, like the chat stream was moving so quickly because yeah. something like 400 people would be in a room and it was impossible to keep up with. And so th- this is, this is like this new breed of problem where, uh, and you can see, you know, the precursors for it are like Twitch plays Pokemon, which was yep. an automated interface but it's like, how do we distill down the the agency or even the focus of the audience mm-hmm. um, into into something that can be parsable uh, and digestible? Particularly because, you know, I mean, imagine trying to do, and this sounds like an absolute nightmare to me. Imagine trying to do an improv show, a fully improv show, with a four hundred person audience, all of whom had a microphone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Right, like just you know, you would you would collapse um, because people just could shout at any time. So like someone's got to be parsing the material. You yeah, know, some, someone's got to be wrangling the crowd. Crowd, and that's I think the 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 definitely not clue the Pixel Playhouse kids. 
they had they had someone in the chat uh sort of being like the equivalent of the carnival barker um and that's such a different role than someone would think about when it comes to like well we're going to put a show on you know but like yeah but who's going to be the audience captain who's going to be the go between between the performers and the the audience or or the players between the players and the players right yes so um, the the script for roundabout calls out for performance you will need a person we will name we will call the spotter whose only job is to monitor the chat channel and interact with what's going on there and there's also a character in the play who puck like exists in both worlds across both worlds and addresses the audience directly as well as being an actor in the show. Um, so yeah, you 100% have to have that. Now, this morning, I did a uh, stream this morning with Sarah Ellis of the uh, RSC, who's the director of digital development there. And she was saying, in the theater of Shakespeare's day, it was loud. Yeah. People went, they... They heckled, they talked, they did their business, they saw and were seen, they carried on conversations. It was boisterous. It was more like the chat channel than the uh, Hearts of Mythlothian village players perform X with people sitting very quietly in their seats and then making uh, jazz hands at the end to signal their applause. Yeah. Elizabethans would have loved cell phones. Yeah. Just 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 completely oh my god and there would have been rapier fights in the uh, in the pit because like someone wouldn't turn off their damn phone <laughs> yes uh, and that's absolutely true and i think that's for those of us who are like you know as we've spoken of before uh the worst vr you ever saw was made by someone who went to film school <laughs> yeah because uh film school trains you to have an absolutely captive audience and then control literally second by second what they see and how they feel yeah and in immersive or vr spaces where they can just get up and walk around that just breaks those dudes like <laughs> It's it's also like a, it makes me think about the difference between going to like a film festival and seeing an indie film with a big, quiet, wrapped crowd. And of course, then there's always the one person who does break out their cell phone, and like everyone freaks out. Like <laughs> it's like high, which and I'd be one of those people freaking out because like almost this level of you know high ritual, right? Like we're gonna break the spell if if something goes off. Versus going to like a Marvel movie and you both expect and tolerate that people are going to shout and scream and talk back, you know, within reason to, to the screen. Because if, if, if the movie's doing its job, it's actually creating space, you know, hold for applause, right? Like they know, yeah, okay, so 
then we're going to see Mjolnir on the ground and then we're going to see Cap's boots. And then like, there's just going to be enough time for another character to have a reaction shot because the audience is going to be taken in their breath because Cap's going to pick up Mjolnir and they're going to freak the F out. Uh, And they do. And we do. And someone immortalizes it on YouTube. And then when you're feeling like you're missing going to the movies, you just watch that clip on YouTube over and over as the crowd loses their shit. Um, it's so funny for me to be where I am because I'm going to say something that will that will at once estrange me probably to you and the entire no proscenium listening audience. I am the person who came out of Rocky Horror thinking, oh my God, if those people would just shut up, I could hear the lines. <laughs> I found that so frustrating. And here I am. 40 or 35 years later saying, oh, maybe that was a good thing. Maybe we got to get more of that. So I am a bit chagrined, but honestly, I didn't know the show and I wanted to know what happened and I couldn't hear. Yeah. No, no. I, I, uh, Sean, we're, we're unexpected, not unexpectedly, a lot more simpatico on this. I was the kid who didn't want to go into the Rocky. The the folks who ran the Rocky in my town, like they, I'll admit it, they creep me out. Um, and I think I think history has proven me not to be entirely wrong there. Uh, so <laughs> I was the guy. I was the guy while my friends were in Rocky, sitting in the cafe with my other writer friend till like three in the morning, waiting for us to be able to go to Denny's because the thing that we did all like to do is we all went to Denny's afterwards together. Right. Like, right. Seriously theater like you think you've done it with your theater friends wait till you roll in with a rocky crowd to a denny's at three in the morning um and so yeah i mean and when i finally when i finally saw like it was years later like i had i had mellowed out enough that i wasn't offended by it um and actually was 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 uh really amused at the evolution like i was sitting there it was like me, my buddy Zay, who's been on the show a lot, and like we used to coordinate from New York. Our friend Steve Clems, who went on to like do like theme park design audio stuff, and we're we're sitting watching the show. And this this was far enough later on that like Fight Club had come out, so like there were these three girls behind us who, when like meatloafs on on the table or were like chanting his name is Robert Paulson and we were just kind of like looked at each other like what and then when like the when the wheel thing is spinning on it the chant was like wheel of morality turn and turn tell us the lesson that we should learn which is right out of animaniacs and so we were like just we started crying with laughter because it 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 wasn't stale like this thing that had been made the years we were born basically had kept absorbing the culture through the dynamic of of the audience like like a text that was but because of the audience the text was still alive uh so two thoughts about that one that's a hilarious story the second is and talking to the rsc people i was thinking about normally if you're successful you do not innovate Usually innovation is something you do when you don't have a choice. It's, mm. it's just the way of nature. Small organizations innovate. A giant like the RSC, why the hell are they doing anything new? And I was, after talking to them for a while, it occurred to me that, and, and they were sort of mentioning around this, there are only 37 plays. 
they mm -hmm. have to do those 37 plays and they have to make those 37 plays relevant and they've had to do that for 400 years <laughs> and everybody knows the plays there's a yeah. reason that sleep no more claims however plausibly or not that macbeth is core to them it's like a text people know that lets you orient to what's going on yeah and because it's known and because it's the same and because you have to make it connect that's why you have to innovate um which i was like oh right duh yeah the second thought about your rocky horror is um as you may remember i spent a strange um ultimately short time at uh, the short-lived uh, Xbox Entertainment Studios when Xbox decided they wanted to be in television. And I was there with my friend and longtime design partner, Ilan Lee. And one of the thing briefs we were given is, you know, figure out what is interactive television besides TV, but more annoying. <laughs> um, and the project that we were most excited about and sorriest that we did not get a chance to um, see to fruition was um, a fairly simple idea that you'd be able to build on Xbox without much difficulty in the scale of what Microsoft considers difficult, where uh, you are watching Game of Thrones and you're tweeting about Game of Thrones on Xbox. And instead of going out into the world, it is attached to the timestamp. So you don't spoil it for people who are not watching the show. Yeah. But when they watch the Red Wedding three weeks later, they go, oh, shit. And they see your, oh, shit, at that moment. Yeah. So one of the things that's beautiful about that system is if you have an upvote and downvote, one, when you watch Star Wars this year and then you watch it a year later, that channel of comments will be different mm. and it will be continuously renewed by whatever people felt was the funniest, the freshest, the most apt, the most apropos um, comment running. In other words, we tried to build the, the chat channel for already filmed content. Um, yeah, in, in kind of giving it an atemporal exactly nature, making the commentary sync to the film instead of to life, yeah, which is of course would be deadly, would be the last nail in the coffin of broadcast television. But that bad boy is probably already <laughs> suffering from a lot of problems. Well, but I mean, I could see. I mean be able to do like the, the, the rerun of the package and the full deal. And I've definitely had that thought of like, gosh, I'd love to be able, like, if I want to watch the Oscars or, or I mean, I, I, I'm still a TV junkie in, in a real way, but like my broadcast TV junkie days are so broken just by not having cable for, for yeah. forever and being cord cut really since even before it was a kind of a thing. I mean, I was, I was finding weird ways to watch television like 15 years ago, you know, like I was in, I was, in, I was an early experimenter with like, oh God, there were services I can't remember the names of anymore, but it was like, let's do this. Let's do, they were doing their own original programming too. Like, you know, and I was watching it on almost like halfway to dial up levels of, of ISPs. Right. And, and, but that, that experience of watching the Oscars or seeing what's going on with the Super Bowl 
you know, watching that second remove on Twitter to be able to then go like, Hey, no, like, let me relive this chunk of time, right? Like creating like the, the Twitter time machine and syncing everything back up. You just, you just gave the exact example, right? With Mjolnir. Yeah. Like go on YouTube when you want to relive the moment at which everybody goes, Oh shit. Yeah. Because that's the part that's exciting. Um, so unlike a lot of people that I hang out with, I kind of like sports. Um, and one thing that I've never, ever experienced is being in a stadium for a really big game, like mm. being in game seven of the Stanley Cup finals, being in a playoff and the, the energy, the electricity that it must be to be there live with all those other people. Um, but I have experienced things like that explosive energy when in the course of something like the ARG work, you you put your work out into the world and then you watch the audience explore and discover and explode and lament and be overjoyed and be sad and be angry. And like it's very intense for a creator to be able to see that kind of feedback live and in real time and it's very intense for an audience to be part of something like that so i think if theater can manage to harness the tools of this era to give people that kind of explosive live experience um it's got a good shot at making going to a movie and you just what sit there feel antiquated and lonely when i want to i mean i want to push back a little bit at, at at the idea that it's it's the movie that's the competition so much because i think it's really it's it's the experience of watching television it's experience of watching like a movie like you know the biggest movie to hit this summer has been the old guard on netflix um or palm springs on hulu because we can't sure. go to the movies, right? Sure. I did a double, I did a double feature of them, and like I really like Palm Springs, and I thought the Old Guard was was good, you know. Um, it 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 was it had a big star. Uh, I probably would have been even more into it if I hadn't already read the comic book. Like it was a super gotcha. super good adaptation. It happened to be adapted by the guy who wrote the comic book, so like that goes a long way, you know. Um, but missing was, I mean, I watched that at home by myself. And so all of those moments that could have been like, yeah, Oh God, did you see that? You know, like all that stuff that oofs that get, that, that happen, um, gone. And, and, and when I have, uh, you know, I have a ritual where, where if a star Wars or a Batman movie comes out, I always buy at least two tickets to two different shows. And part of it is I want to see how the audiences react. And when the film is divisive, and the last two Star Wars films have been divisive, it's really interesting because you can come out having felt like you watched an entirely different film Mm. based on the people who are around you and how they were reacting to the key moments. All those moments that were meant to have a reaction, they don't, they never go exactly like, unless it's a Marvel movie where it's like somehow they've got it done to an exact science. Um, <laughs> like they never go exactly how the filmmaker thinks it's going to go. And so 
particularly in the last Star Wars movie, it it was almost weird, like how different the reactions were, particularly compared to the first of this new cycle, where it, it was a lot more highly tuned, where it was just like every audience hit the same beats exactly the same way each time, like pure, you know, Spielbergian level of, of, of manipulation emotionally. Um, and, and that element right there, that gets back to that communal experience. Like, what do we go to the theater, be it for film or, or live for? And that communal experience is such a big, big part of it. I, I even, I, I'm not religious in any traditional sense. And, uh, but I can understand the anxiety of all the people who like are really missing church and who are even like flaunting basic safety precautions at the moment, because that experience of community and communion with mm-hmm. the rest of the congregation is essential to their lives in, mm-hmm. in a way that's essential to our lives. We as, you know, largely, you know, to greater or lesser extent, secularly you know, obsessed, you know, creatures. Uh, we get that out of going to the movies, going to the theater, going to football. Like those, those, it's a big part of being human. It's, it's where a lot of the anxiety in the moment is coming from. And, and what I worry about for not, not so much for the immersive creators, because I think they, they understand that, you know, agency in this relationship, with the audience is a key part of it. But for like, theater makers in general like if they're not thinking about their audience if they're not thinking about that dynamic they're throwing out the baby with the bathwater, and they're they're just they're making tv it'll be interesting to see one of the experiences uh the thing about doing this is i'm working with a whole bunch of 20 22 24 18 year olds. So people who do not have a memory of a world without cell phones. Mm. Um, It will be very interesting to see the work that they do. Like a couple of years ago now, or a year and a half, but it feels like so much longer. Um, We were both at the Immersive Design Summit in San Francisco. And I spent most of the time that I wasn't actually on stage talking, wandering around talking to 20 year olds making work because I have such a strong sense that I'm so interested in knowing what the work is that you make when you are native to this condition. Um, I, I look at this play, which I kind of like. Um, I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. In my best, best hope, it will be a Model A. Model T. It's just not going to be a 57 Thunderbird. I can't imagine the 57 Thunderbird because I was born into a world with rotary phones. I was born into a world that did not effortlessly assume that 60% of the people I know will read 40% of the things that have happened to me on Instagram sometime over the next four days. That's just a very different way of being in the world. And the people, like, if I have one ray of hope for 
like I'm working with a bunch of kids who are just finishing a degree in theater school when an interplanetary comet has come and wiped out all the theaters. Um, and the best thing I can say to them, or one of them is, you actually understand this world in a way that I don't. The work you're going to make is natural to the world in the way that I don't. Here's a shocking fact for you. Um, the high profile, the sort of most successful Snap originals on Snapchat have bigger audience numbers than Game of Thrones. Did you know that? I sure didn't. No. 54% of Gen Y, apparently, or Gen Z, has seen um, a Snap original in the last year. No one knows that. I'm sure no one in TV and movies realizes that 20 million people are watching shows on Snapchat that are built around that platform and are built around the assumptions and use patterns and behaviors of people 15 to 22. Yeah. Well, I, th I think, I think the ones who are aware that it's a threat, they go out and they build something like Quibi. You know? <laughs> and, and, and it turns out that when, yeah, see yeah. my point about the model a above. Yeah. Literally the most expensive Emmy campaign in history. Uh, they got 10 nominations. Congratulations, everybody. <laughs> That's what you got out of it. Uh, you know, there's cheaper ways to do that. <laughs> so you only have to spend a hundred thousand dollars to get an Emmy nomination if you're going for a technical Emmy. Um, so uh, yeah, well, and, and I think, I think the, the 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 madness of the industry and industries that we 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 live in, and that's the thing. Like the industries that are converged, you know, video games, movies, yeah. web streaming, all of it, it's converged at this point. Um, even the live stuff, right? Um, we 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 forget that, even though it's a it's a ground truth. Um, even that stuff on Snapchat, you know. It, it doesn't exist in a vacuum 100%. Of, of, you know, like, you know, there's things are still being set culturally by your Marvel movies and yep. by your Game of Thrones. Yep. And you watch AT&T take over Warner Media and try and turn HBO into Netflix. And it's like, you don't need to do that. You guys can own the cultural capital by making better and less than trying to flood the market because as everyone will tell you, most Netflix movies are, eh, you know, it, it sometimes feels like the guys from Asylum Video who used to make all those blockbuster knockoffs that wound up in blockbuster video, like right. Transmorphers, like that they've, they've taken over a television network, you know, it's like, guess what guys? Revenge of the Dark Fallen Moon is coming out. You know, it's, <laughs> it's like, we, we made it in secret. You know, it's like, it's actually even got like less of, of a logic to it. It's like, yeah, we just spent $30 million on a show. Oh, when's it coming out? Um, it just came out. What do you mean? It's like, yeah, I just dropped it. I hit, I hit go. It's like, it's like a bunch of people think that they're, I mean, Netflix sometimes feels like it's the SoundCloud rapper of filmmaking, you know, like I dropped a new track, yo. Um, <laughs> with, which if you're, if you're famous enough, you know, like I think about the way 
you know, totally off track. And somebody got to wrap us up because I got to run and do stuff. But like, I think about the fact that like a Taylor Swift album dropped last week with like six hours notice or which, which, which the pattern for that was started when Beyonce was just like yep. on a Friday, on a Friday one day, she was like, and now an album. And everyone's like, Oh my God. Um, and, and if you're that big, you can get away with that. Uh, whereas everyone else has to like, you know, build up to the point where they can just like drop work as if it was nothing. But then again, to, to, to get to that point, you have to have built up this relationship with the audience mm, mm-hmm. and, and how you craft that relationship. And, and it doesn't have to, that can feel sinister and manipulative, but it's really about who are you to them and who are they to you and how do you want how do you want to play with them? And you can either play with them like a cat plays with a mouse, or you can play with them the way a peer plays with a peer. Um, uh, put me in camp too, please. Yes. But my, myself as well. But there, there are certainly people who do the first thing very well. Um, oh yeah. I just, yeah. it's not my natural jam. No, I, <laughs> like a profiler, like I understand that that mindset pretty well, and I'm often very terrified by it. Um, all right, <laughs> that's a weirdo. Sean, if people want to come and play in the sense of playing with their peers, uh, how uh, how can they experience Roundabout? Uh, this so, kind of... uh, Roundabout is going to be streaming live on Twitch, so it's twitch tv twitch.tv backslash nida n-i-d-a underscore roundabout uh it's going to be on there will be six shows uh three in australia australian time at 8 p.m which puts it at 3 a.m in the morning i'm getting up here on the uh on the uh, I think it's the 4th, 5th, and 7th. And then for people who don't want to be awake at 3 o'clock in the morning, um, the show will play three times, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, August 6th, 7th, and 8th, at 6 p.m. West Coast time. That's 9 p.m. on the East Coast. Um, and you just show up at that URL. It's as easy as going to YouTube. If you want to put comments in the chat channel, um yourself then you'll need a twitch account which is the exact same give us an email and a password as it is everywhere else on the internet but if you just want to see the show um and be able to read the comments it's just as easy as going to any other website um out out of curiosity what what time australia time are those west coast time shows 11 o'clock in the morning oh that's not so bad that's just an early matinee yeah it's it's an early matinee yeah, you can solve for any two of Los Angeles, London, and Sydney, but you cannot solve for all three. So <laughs> we just had to have two different show times. So yeah. <laughs> you can either be part of the European and Australian contingent or be part of the North American and Australian contingent. I decided that making the actors do it at 3 a.m. seemed extreme. No, so, no, 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 no. We would just make it be me. Yeah. 
All right. Well, Sean, it's always it's always fantastic just to get to talk to you in general, and it's always a blast to be able to put it in the context of the podcast. So um, that's a great we, pleasure for me as well. Um, I spent twenty years as a novelist, which is a lot of sitting by yourself in a room. So one of the things I love about being in the theater space is it's back to making things with other people and talking to other people about them and to going out to Denny's. There's not a lot of novelists going out to Denny's action, which is a sad, sad lack. Yeah. And the funny thing is, is like, even in the pandemic, Denny's is still functioning. They're doing pop-up tents in their parking lots. (laughs) (laughs) Like people need their Denny's fix and Denny's needs the money. So, um... (laughs) All right, Sean, uh, we'll do this again soon, I hope. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Once again, I want to thank Sean Stewart for being our guest on the show. If you missed the URL, you'll be able to find the link to Roundabout on Twitch in the show notes as well as a link to Sean's essay that uh, inspired me to email him. It was like, hey, you want to jump on the podcast this week real quick? Oh, how about tomorrow morning? Um, so yeah, there you go. Uh, always, just always a, a pleasure to talk to Sean. I would have gladly talked to Sean for like another hour, but uh, uh, the stuff. In fact, stuff that is uh, impacting the show. Uh, for those of you who stuck around uh, for the tail end of last week, I know some of you did because some of you have been like you know, sending things and that's not required just appreciated but, but that's that's not the, that's not the play here um uh, i did i had to uh, take my mom for her her follow-up appointment um and uh, good news is uh, uh they don't have to take her back to surgery uh, for a third time which is <laughs> wonderful uh the meh news is is that yeah there's there's more external radiation and judging from the way it's going to go uh, two to three weeks of probably about two hours a day of uh, of activity. The the radiation didn't take too long, but getting to the hospital and getting out of the hospital. So uh, what that means is that uh, the timing isn't uh, – well, the timing is – timing. What's timing anymore? Uh, it sucks. It just sucks. Uh, it's also depressing. I'll just cop to it. Like, it's also uh, – you know – I find it stressful going to a hospital in the pandemic. So it's stressful. Um, And it also means I have to put on pants every damn day. That was the deal, man. You do a pandemic. I don't wear pants. I'm wearing pajamas right now, which aren't pants. So um, that's the comic way. But seriously, um, so... The other, it's also coming right at the time that uh, Catherine's uh, diving into the online version of her second year and at USC uh, Games uh, in in the the master's program. Uh, so, uh, I fully expecting there to be, uh, you know, Catherine to have not as much time on the stuff that she does, and I was planning on picking up some slack and seeing how that was going to go and still going to do that. But we all know uh, uh, <laughs> I'm overextended and lazy. So um, I, I don't know what's going to happen uh, on the back end of August in terms of, uh, you know, keeping things rolling. The good news is we've got a couple of things planned that will make things easier on us, we hope. 
And uh, the timing on that is actually really good, like literally to the day. Um, so yeah, and I'm just gonna be, I'm gonna be weird and stressed out for a few weeks. Uh, even weirder and even more stressed out than I normally am, uh, which is a lot. So just you know, choppy waters ahead. And that's one of the reasons why no episode next week, so that over the next two weeks, when we're not doing this stuff, because the the radiation stuff doesn't start for like another, it's like, I think on like the 17th is when we go for uh, an appointment or something. I don't know. I can't even keep track of dates anymore. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we see the doctor and then they got to do paperwork and stuff. And it's just all, it's all a goddamn mess. But the point is, back end of the month is when that starts. Next two weeks, got enough time to get a couple episodes in the can, stockpile stuff, uh, and then just be able to like roll these out uh, as we go. And so oddly enough, there won't be an interruption uh, if I play the cards right. So trying to play the cards right here, get a little ahead of the curve. At some point, I'll uh, I'll even take a week off uh, just for me, probably around my birthday week, so uh, late October. Uh, around October 24th, I'll, uh, I'll just, uh, we'll go dark. Uh, we'll go dark on the podcast and we'll go dark on uh, everything immersive this week. There will be an everything immersive this week. Uh, and the newsletter is getting out today and yeah, the plan is to try and get ahead of things so that as they inevitably slip and fall, they just kind of fall into where they belong and not fall into, uh, oblivion. Yeah. Uh, that's TMI. Uh, let me tell you, uh, it's, that's I um mm, bah, woof. yeah man like it's just everything's a lot right now and I mean I'm, my thoughts are with a lot of you who are probably staring down the barrel of uh, the end of the unemployment uh, added benefit um, you know and if if folks have to switch off their Patreon support because uh, the bottom dropped out for them I trust me I understand hopefully we'll find folks who can pick up the slack on that. Um, some of that's happening on my end too. Uh, so, uh, just don't uncharted waters, uncharted waters where all this stuff is going. Um, early October, I'm not going to say anything yet, but like we're starting, we're making some plans for doing some stuff. So some reconnecting and have some schemes when it comes to, uh, playing with the discord again because it's been a hot minute i know we don't do a lot of things on there a lot of that has to do with the fact that discord's been very janky when it comes to uh, uh craig and recording in general so um and that's not on the craig developers it's definitely on discord so but there are other things to do rather than just record the podcast on discord and i'm i've got anyway Got some schemes, got some ideas, and we'll probably be reaching out to a few of you uh, to help those come to fruition. Wink. All right, enough of me. Let's get this wrapped up and let's get this out into the interwebs. So, our sustaining backers, the sustaining backers, no persinium, the thing that means this thing exists at all, are Mark, Bal Mark Balthazar, Jan Budman, Paul F., Lonnie Hansen. Ari Hurston, Sam Kinkin, Samuel Mystery, Sydney Guillory, Jeremy Charles Hahn, Brittany, and Elaine. You can join them. You can help uh, keep this rusty bolt uh, moving forward by joining them at patreon.com slash no Uh 
you can uh, the music for No Persinium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. You can find everything we do at nopersinium.com. If you want to get your stuff listed, please visit everythingimmersive.com and uh, sign up there as a creator uh, and submit your event. Uh, and we will be having the uh, user uh, public beta portion of that start in not too long. All right. This has been Noah Nelson. And until next time, thank you for wearing the mask.